Well, good morning. Oh, wow, you guys are really... Did you sleep in? Are you okay? Everybody all right? I know it's the middle of summer, but good morning. All right, that's a little better. A little better. I might have to ask again in a minute. Um, uh, welcome today. Uh, welcome to our family gathering at Cultivate. Um, we call this our family gathering, and I, I say this a lot because we're the family of God because of uh, the Son of God giving up His place in God's family to welcome us in. And so uh, we gather as a family. That's what we're doing together on Sunday to be encouraged uh, by our brothers and sisters, to be uh, reminded of the truths of the gospel, to be equipped to go out and really be the church the other six days and 22 hours of our week. So um, that's why we're here this morning. And uh, just grateful that you've uh, chosen to gather with us today. I know a lot of people are, are like John said, kind of, traveling and, and doing uh, many, many things over the summer months. So um, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and we've been calling the series Greater. Uh, what we've been doing is we've, we've been looking uh, at this, this letter that's written to kind of a discouraged, fearful, uh, doubting sort of community, and uh, we're asking the question, which is what he's asking, which is why is Jesus the greater source of life? What is it that he gives us that uh, overcomes those fears, that grounds us in our encouragement, that leads us through our doubts? Um, give me an issue. All right. um, so we've been going through this uh, together. We're, we're, we're going to be in it for a few more weeks uh, as we kind of wrap up. And um, just to, to mention, there, we've had a lot of other people that have come and uh, taught through various weeks. And I just want to just say how I've been uh, from other people stepping in and encouraging us and and uh, presenting God's word to us. Everyone has just done an amazing job uh, at that, and I've been so uh, I, I've just had a lot of fun listening and hearing what God's doing in so many different people's lives. So uh, that's been great for me, and it's great for us as a community because we we get to hear God's word through the perspective of the people that you sit among, which is always valuable. And we're always, as a church, trying to kind of uh, develop and raise up people for ministry. And so that, thank you so much, that gives them the opportunity to uh, to develop those gifts and skills for the good of the body and for God's mission. Anyway, so so each week we've been we've been looking at various pieces of this letter together, and uh, and we're reminded again and again that the answer for us, if we want to overcome these things, isn't to look back to what's familiar. It's to look forward to Jesus and to ask, what is He bringing us into? And uh, today we're going to look at the one of the primary things that He's bringing us into, and that is community. Okay, so we're going to be uh, part of Hebrews 12 and then go into chapter 13 uh, up through verse 9. And this is what it says. It will be on the screen as well. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God accept, acceptably, reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you, as if as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. 
Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will and all the sexual immoral. Keep your lives of money have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Pay no attention. Remember your leaders, especially when they have microphone problems. Um, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, um, if you're paying attention, if you've been kind of reading with us up until this point, uh, the writer seems to have done a almost a 90-degree turn from where we've been. So everything up until now has always been focused, thank you, on Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what our lives should look like as a result of all this. And um, it, he's never kind of strayed away from that sort of singular message of this is who he is, this is what he's done. Remember him, look to him. Um, but now it seems like we've gone to a section where all of a sudden there's all these instructions, right, about how to live. Love your brothers. Uh, remember those in prison. Keep the marriage bed pure. All these, all these, like, it's almost like a grab bag of different instructions. If we're not careful, we can go, wait a second. What just happened? Right? Here, we've been talking about worship. We've been talking about God. And now all of a sudden, there's this, like, to-do list. Why is that? Um, because, and the author is giving these instructions to people that are suffering. Why is he doing that? And I think the reason is because, again, this this section is telling us all about community and and the kind of community that results from seeing God for who He is and worshiping Him as He is. And and what the essentially what the writer is trying to communicate to them and to us is that if if you want a secure life, if you want an unshakable life. A life that doesn't um, sway in the breeze every time a doubt comes along, every time discouragement comes your way, every time fear knocks at the door. If you want to be grounded and almost immune to those kinds of things, then the only way to do that is by committing yourself to a radical community. It comes no other way. It's all about community, and it's about the kind of community that results from seeing the gospel as it is. And so that's what we're going to talk about. I want to—I think God wants us to, to highlight a few things that come through in this passage. And it's all about this kind of radical community, that, that the Christian community is to be a community that, that's radically important, radically intense, and radically open. It's Community is radically important, it's radically intense, and it's radically open. And, and then we've got to talk about how do we see this kind of community happen in our midst. All right? So, important. Why is it so important? This is the whole reason I included the last two verses from chapter 12 in this week's kind of reading. Because if, if you look at verse 28 and 29 of chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful... 
and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And we, we kind of landed on this last week, but the, the God is a consuming fire. And we were made, we were created in God's image to stand in God's presence. To, to, to come into contact with this consuming fire of a God and to worship Him and adore Him and, and rejoice in Him and glory in Him. And what, what we discover about Jesus, and this has been the, the, the discussion the entire way through this book, is that, that He is the consuming fire that you've been looking for your entire life. He's the love that you've been looking for in every human heart. He is the, the, the one who gives the approval that you've been seeking in every single achievement. He is the, the only safe place that we have, not just in this life, but for all eternity. He is the rest that you have been longing for in every vacation that seems to end too soon. And, and what we see over and over again is nothing and no one can satisfy you because you were built for this fire. And everything else is just a smoldering act compared to Him. And God is so committed to consuming anything in, in your life and in my life that would take the place of where He alone can sit. Because He deserves to be at the center of our life. He deserves to be the, the one that we uh, worship in and glory in and rejoice in with everything that we do and every fiber of our being. And what we saw last week is that God is committed to shaking away anything that keeps us from that reality. Right? Now, here's the, here's the question. What does it mean then to worship God acceptably? What is the acceptable worship that God desires from us? Now, let me ask this a different way, right? Because Jesus changes the whole equation. Before Jesus came along, and you, we dialogue here sometimes, so you can, you can throw out a response to this question. How did you, before Jesus came along, how did you come into contact with this consuming fire of a God? By, by what did you do in order to be in God's presence? What's that? Offered sacrifices, which is atonement for our sin. Went to a temple to do those things. Lived a holy life. So when you think about where God was found, He was found, last week we talked about that first mountain, right? That, that God, Lindsay was talking about that, the, 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 the fire, uh, the, the mountain of fear. That you, you came into God's presence through that, but, but it was a terrifying thing. And, and because it was, it was terrifying because God won't allow sin to remain in His presence, undealt with. And so there needed to be rituals and sacrifices and observances. And now what, what we said was that in chapter 12, Jesus' blood changes everything because it, it provides for our forgiveness and it cleanses us for once and for all and it creates justification so that we can stand before God. And now God can dwell among His people. And what used to fill us with terror, being in God's presence, now should fill us with joy. Okay, here's the second question. How... Now, after Jesus has come, how do you worship God acceptably? It used to be in a temple with rituals and sacrifices and observances. 
now what now what does it mean to worship God acceptably? It's chapter 13. This is the new worship. And that's why it's not just a list of to-dos. What the writer is saying is the very next the very next words out of his mouth are what? God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Did you catch it? It's the new temple. It's the new ritual. See, all of those things that we did to try to get ourselves into God's presence, all of them have been taken care of. They've all been done for us because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. So we don't need to do any of those things. So what then takes its place? Living like Jesus, which means building a community and loving people. Do you see? This is radical, and you don't get it yet. I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it. Let me try harder. The way that we experience God, the way that He comes into our lives and reshapes us and redirects us is no longer through services and rituals and ceremonies. It is through a community of brothers and sisters. That's how it happens. You know what that's saying? It's saying that you will not, cannot experience God as a consuming fire of transforming love and grace apart from deeply committing yourself to a community of people that are following after that God together. You just can't do it. Without living your life alongside others who want to experience and know that same grace as you do. See, it's the, it's the new way we come into contact with God. It's also the new way that we show the world what God is like. You know, in, in Israel's history, it used to be the fact that that temple stood there year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation as a testimony to who their God was. And what does the New Testament say about us? This body is the new temple by which God dwells in His Spirit. Do you know what that means? It means that we as a community are the way that God the way that God shows off his character and his goodness and his grace to the world. And it's not it, nothing can substitute for that. No programs can substitute for the community of God. No single pastor, no matter how skinny his genes are and no matter how relevant his teaching is can substitute for the community of God? No, no matter how impressive your building is or how great your, your stuff is, none of that substitutes for a community that shows off His grace. This is the radical way that we show the world what our God is like. And it's the radical way that we worship Him. So I'm sorry, I mean... If you think that worship is just singing a few songs alone, but after you're done singing those songs, you don't live out the instructions of the rest of this chapter to love brothers and sisters and prisoners and strangers, you're not worshiping. You're fooling yourself. 
You, 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 you've declared that you're close to God with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. And God wants your heart more than your mouth. Let me... Have I put it strongly enough? Let me put it a little stronger. If you're coming to a worship gathering once a week or once a month, the frequency really doesn't matter. To sing a few songs, but you neglect the rest of this words, the words of this chapter, you will not experience his fiery presence in your heart and in your life. It only comes through community. We need community. I was thinking about it this way. Do you, Jesus spent 33 years on earth. How many books did he write? Zero. He wasn't locked up in an office studying theology or, or writing manuscripts for the rest of us to follow. There were people that did that, but do you know what he spent his time doing? Building a community to show the world what he was like and what he taught and what was on its way. And he said things like, you're a city on a hill. Do you, can you be a city by yourself? I don't know. He said, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep. You're my flock. Can you be a flock by yourself? No. Are you part of a deep community? Or are you still trying to experience God through the ritual of coming on a Sunday service alone? See, we're, we're inundated in a culture right now that says that you can experience God and you don't need anybody to help you. That you, in a sense, can, can be an island unto yourself. You don't need organized religion. You don't need an institution to tell you what God's like. Do you know um, Paul would have a lot to say about that? You remember Paul? One of the things that Paul said that's been really um, convicting me recently is um, his strongest form of discipline for a believer in Jesus. Do you know what it was? Is to excommunicate somebody from the Christian community. It was to isolate them from the rest of the flock. Do you know what he called that? Handing someone over to Satan. That was his terminology for being an individual Christian. Was to turn them over to Satan. And yet now, we live in a Christian world or Christian worldview and a way of thinking where, where we think, I can just live my Christian life out all my, on my own, just me and Jesus. And Paul's going, don't you realize you are handing yourself over to his enemy? It's severe. And I'm, I'm watching it again and again and again with people that remove themselves from a Christian community. I don't care if it's this one or another one. And Satan is shaking them down. And they're full of discouragement and full of fear and full of doubts. Why do you think that is? It's not because they're following Jesus. It's because they've allowed the enemy to remove them from a safe place from other believers in Christ that are going to lead them into the fiery presence of God. And all of a sudden, they find their hearts cold to Him. It's important, family. It couldn't be more important. Do you want an unshakable life? 
Do you, do you want a faith that's stronger than fear, that's stronger than discouragement, that's stronger than doubt? The only way to get that kind of life is by immersing yourself in a deep, close, vulnerable community of brothers and sisters who also, along with you, want that consuming fire in their lives. This is the whole reason we talk to no end about community groups here. Because we realize you can't experience this kind of life apart from being alongside brothers and sisters who know you and who you know them. And you grow together with them and you repent with them and you discuss with them and you pray with them. We need it, don't we? Have I convinced you? All right. It's radically important, but it's radically intense. Um, If you look at this, verse 1 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. And that love as brothers and sisters is the word Philadelphia, right? We know this. We're so close to the city, and many of you have lived there for a time, but it's brotherly love, right? Now, I don't know what kind of love you think about when you think about Philadelphia. Um, (laughs) But I don't know if it's really getting after what um, the writer is talking about here. Um, Because, again, this concept of brotherly love was radical. It was radical then, it's radical now. Um, There was a man by the name of Lucian of Samosata, who's a Greek... Um, kind of intellectual. He, he wasn't a believer in Jesus, but he, he was writing about how radical the Christian community was in his day. And he says this about them. He says, Their founder persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. See, it's amazing, isn't it, how stunned he was that what the Christian community from every other community on earth is that they took seriously the fact that they were one another's brothers and sisters. And that meant that every... That means for us, too, that that every person who's been adopted into God's family and is now following after Jesus, we say this a lot, they're not like your brothers and sisters. They are your brothers and sisters. See, if if someone is sort of kind of like your brother and sister, then you can sort of kind of treat them like your brother and sister when it's convenient for you, when it it meets your schedule, when when it kind of gets you to where you want to go in life. But then if you don't really kind of sort of want to treat them like brothers and sisters, well, they're just like my brothers and sisters. They're not really my brothers and sisters. Do you realize, though, that Everywhere that the Bible talks about adoption into God's family and the blood of Christ, it always says that the blood of Christ is more powerful than the blood of your own family and where you came from. It is more, it should be more determinative of how you live your life than any other reality. And that means that the people that you're sitting next to this morning, they're not just sort of kind of like your brothers and sisters. They sort of kind of are your brothers and sisters. So you tell me then, we talk about this a lot, what does that mean? If they really are, if we really are a family, what does that mean for us? What are the implications of that? (laughs) Spoken like a true idler, I love it. We're going to get into some arguments. 
Ah, that's the thing, right? So when brothers and sisters fight, do they, does one of them say to the other, is it right for one of them to say to the other one, well, I'm just going to go and live at someone else's house then? Or, do they, or should they, because they're a family, work through that disagreement so that they can live at peace with one another underneath the same household? It's the latter, not the former, right? And yet how often do, do Christians treat uh, one another as brothers and sisters rather than really brothers and sisters? Because when we have a disagreement with a brother and sister, we just go, well, I'm just going to worship in someone else's home. I'm just going to separate myself from this person. You would never do that if they were really your brother and sister. You're stuck with them. <laughs> You're committed to them. For better, for worse. No matter how much you might dislike them in the moment, you realize that you are called to love them. And that means commitment. What else does it mean? Right. Exactly. <laughs> right, I know. Just saying. It's there if you want it. Um, yeah, it has implications on our, on our possessions. If we're really siblings, then we share the same inheritance. Which means my home is your home. My food is your food. My wallet is your wallet. My retirement account is your retirement account. And and I shouldn't, in reality, make decisions apart from considering my brothers and sisters. When's the last time that you considered whether or not you should take on debt because it might limit your ability to meet a brother or sister's need when it comes around? Have you ever done that? That's one of the implications here. Is that I wouldn't wouldn't build my life so close to the margins of my capability and leave no room if a need of my brother and sister comes along and then I can't meet it. You see how radical this is? That we would treat one another as brothers and sisters? It's it's completely upside down from the world. Time is another one, right? Brothers and sisters eat together and they play together and they work towards common goals together. They grow together and they open up their lives and their struggles together. They share sins with one another. They share resources with one another. They share decisions with one another. That's what a real family does. Are you or have you ever done any of those things? That's what it means to worship God acceptably. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's part of what it means for God wanting us to walk in freedom. Is freedom from the brokenness of the families that we've come from. And if, if family is a dirty word to you, then I, I, on the authority of God's word, I want you to hear that God wants to redeem that word in a major way for you. So that you, you wouldn't repel at the thought of family, but you would actually go, that is the most beautiful, wonderful thing I could ever possibly experience because now I know what it means to be a fam- in a family in Christ as opposed to the family that I came from. And look, I'm, I'm being harsh in terms of the, the obligation piece <laughs> for us towards one another, but the res- you, you get to receive just as much as you give in, the, in God's community of grace. 
um, it starts with what God has done for us in Christ, and we receive long before we ever give. While we are still sinners, we receive the grace of God, and we receive adoption as sons and daughters, and we receive brothers and sisters who teach us what it looks like to live this new life of grace. And so you're, you're never called to give anything that God isn't already prepared in advance to give to you. So I just want to say that. It's, a, it's my caveat here. But we have to think soberly about what we're called to and what it means to worship God in, 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 in light of being a gospel people. It's, it's deep. It's authentic. It's transformative. It's radical. Jesus didn't die to create a Christian club that we attend on the weekends when we're not busy. He, he died to create a new humanity. And we, because we've experienced the grace of God, get to be a preview of that new humanity by the way that we love one another like brothers and sisters. That's it. Uh, so much of my early Christian experience had this written all over it. And many of you know my story. I came to faith in college. It was primarily through God's influence in the life of my roommate, uh, Mike, at the time. And he was part of a Christian community, and I know that they prayed for me constantly over the course of three years. And then when I finally did experience God's grace and he saved me, I went and I lived among these, these people that I thought were so weird Um, and so different, and I didn't know if I was going to fit, and I I was afraid that they were going to reject me once they saw what my life was really like, but they didn't. And they embraced me, and we ate together, and we prayed together, and we talked about the Bible together. And and when I think back on that experience, I lived in that that, uh, cocoon, that incubation of following Jesus just day and night alongside these other people, that were teaching me and encouraging me and and showing me what it looked like to do that for other people. I mean, all of those fingerprints are all over our community. You realize that, right? The reason that Cultivate looks the way it does today and does what it does today is, is by and large what God was doing in my life in those days. And ever since then, I'm going, no, this is what the church should be for everyone who comes through our doors. It's a, it's a radically intense community. Now, here's the other thing, though. It's, it's also, at the same time, which seems like a paradox, radically open. It's, it's radically open. Um, and, and I've experienced churches and communities of Christians that seem to be radically intense, but they're not open. You ever... Where it's like, we've been together for 25 years. Was anybody new ever come in? No. We don't let that happen. <laughs> you know? Um, but man, like, we love one another and we're, we're, you know, carrying out the commands of Scripture and we're digging deep into the Bible. But, but nobody can ever break into that community. It's not open, right? Now here, here's what it says. We should be deep and open at the same time. Because if you look at it, it says, love one another as brothers. And then verse 2, very next verse says, oh, and don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. See, 
To, to love others as brothers and sisters is Philadelphia. To love strangers is Philoxenia. It's the same word, but now directed towards strangers. So verse 1 is saying, love people in the family. And then verse 2 is, now share that same love with people who are outside of your community. See, Philoxenia means to love strangers as, as though they're on their way to becoming family. It's to treat them like a brother while they're still an enemy. And that, that means that the same implications, everything that we just talked about in terms of the way that we should live our lives towards brothers and sisters applies to this too. That we are to be people who open our homes and our wallets and our resources to people that we would otherwise be suspicious of. People that seem strange to us. And here's the reason that this is so radical is because isn't this the opposite of the way that we're taught to live? We're taught to love the people that can love us back. We're taught to invite people to dinner who will reciprocate the offer. We're taught to loan our things to people that won't destroy them. We're taught to loan money to people that will give that money back someday, preferably with interest, you know? But this is not the the kind of community that that the writer's talking about. In this community, we open our homes to people that may never return the favor. We, We treat the people that the world says to be suspicious of as though they belong. Because maybe God is making them belong. And then this very odd saying comes along. It says, do this to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, what is that all about? That's a little weird, right? It's a reference to Genesis 18, when Abraham welcomed in three strangers into his home and cared for their needs, and they turned out to be messengers from God. Or the two friends on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and they invite a stranger to their table, and it turns out to be Jesus himself. And, and I think what it's trying to get at is, this is how the, the, the God's family works. That we don't just love the people that can repay us. We don't just help the people that can help us back. We don't just ask, okay, what's in this for me? We love everyone, and as we love everyone, we discover that God is in fact sending messengers our way. That He's speaking to us. That He's meeting our needs as we extend ourselves for others. That, that, that if, in a sense, if you, if you try to only give yourself away to people that you know can give back to you, then in a sense, God will never give back to you. But, if you extend hospitality to people that may never be able to give back to you, you will in fact find that God Himself is the one who's refilling you as you extend yourself to others. It's a paradox, isn't it? Let me just ask, I mean, jot this down for yourself. When is the last time you, tr- you treated a stranger as a brother? When's the last time your community group has done that together? What maybe he's giving maybe he's going to give you an opportunity to do that this week. I don't know. See, we would be radically counterculture if we just lived out those two verses alone, right? Just verses one and two. I haven't even gotten to the rest. 
And I probably won't, Marie, so, you know. (laughs) But there is another paradox that I have to make sure to cover, and that is the paradox of verses 3 and 4. Because that's where really things get really weird, really strange, really upside down. Um, this is what this is what verses three and I'll just read them together because they were written together, and see if you you can see how weird they are. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. That's verse three. Verse four. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Wait, huh? Verse 3 says, remember the mistreated. Mistreated is another word for the oppressed. People that are marginalized, people that have been pushed down, people that have been maligned. And that word remember means not just that you go, oh yeah, I, yeah, people were this week in a mass shooting. The word remember means that you consider what you should do about it. It's an action verb. Um, when God remembered that his children were in slavery in Egypt, he didn't just go, oh yeah, I forgot they were slaves. No, when he said, I remember you, it means that he was ready to do something for them. And, and what that's saying to us is we, we should be re- just as ready to intervene for, with our homes, with our wallets, with our time, those that are impressed, oppressed and imprisoned. And yes, that may include the immigrant and the victim of gun violence and the victim of, of racism and the victim of injustice. But then verse 4 seems to go on this wild tangent where it talks about adultery and sexual immorality. And, and it, it says, it, those that um, participate in sex outside of their marriage, that's adultery. And those who are sexually immoral, that word is porneia, which means any sexual activity outside of marriage, that those people are going to be judged. This is what I was scratching my head about like for two-thirds of my week. Why in the world are verse 3 and 4 together? <laughs> he, like, he mashes them together and says, okay, consider these two things. And you're like, wait, my head is spinning. And I think this is the answer that I've come to is that We have to see that both our money, remember, the word remember means to intervene. And what he's talking about specifically is to remember them with your your monetary resources. Provide for their needs. Because in that day, when you were a prisoner, you had no guarantee that you were getting three meals a day. Unless you had a community on the outside that was going to continue to meet your needs while you were in prison, you would go hungry until you starved. And so when the writer is saying, remember those in prison, he's saying, give to them. Be generous with them. Now here's the thing. Both our, and, and this is why I think they go together. Both our money and our body, what are they? They're resources given to you by God. And this is what it's saying. 
is that you can either use the resources of your body and your money to build community, which is an act of worship, or you can use them for your own selfish desires, which is sin. Money and your sexuality are gifts from God. What are you going to do with them? Um, There's a description of the early Christian community in a document called the Epistle to Diognetus. And uh, it says this about the, the early Christians. It says, They share their table with all, but not their bed with all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, yet they abound in all. And there's the two together. See, it's saying Christians shared their table with anyone. They shared their food, their money, their possessions, but they shared their bed with no one except their spouse. And is this not opposite from the world that we live in? In the world that we live in, people share their bed with anyone that they're attracted to, and they don't share their table with those in need. It's the reverse. Now, why is that? It's because we're taught to live in a self-centered, self-seeking world. We're taught to use these resources primarily for our own good and not for the good of others. And don't you see? God is saying you can use them as an act of worship or you can use them as an act of sin, and he gives us the option to choose one or the other. See, because if you're willing to share your bed with, with someone without being willing to marry them, which is, in a sense, to devote yourself in a lifelong community with them, then that means that you're putting your own desires over the good of the other person, by definition. See, if I have sex with someone without giving myself in a covenant to that person and I'm unwilling to share my table, my resources, what does that say about me? It says that I'm, want, I'm living my life to put my happiness first. But don't you see, like, if you believe the gospel, if you understand the grace of God, it changes everything about the way that you use every resource in your life. I mean, think, think of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What that's telling us is that Jesus gave up everything to build community with us. And because we know that grace, if you know that grace, then we use our riches, whether it's house, stuff, money, body, sexuality, for the good of others. We, we use the resources that God has given us to build a new family. And that includes people that are oppressed and imprisoned and marginalized in our culture. See, but sex is also for community. Because the gospel says that sex is reserved for the lifelong partnership of marriage. And it's a tool within that community to serve the needs of the other and to consecrate your vow to them. It's a way to say, I choose you forever and again, and again and again and again. And every time, it's solidifying our lifelong covenant with one another. That's what it's for. It's, It's not to fulfill our own needs. It's to build community. 
And money isn't to fill our, our, our own needs. It's to build community. You see why they go together? That if you know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then you'll live an unselfish life in both your sexuality and in your money. We live in such a polarized world, don't we? Um, and if we're not careful, we will end up living according to the, the way of thinking of the world rather than allow our thinking to be renewed by the gospel. Because the, here's what the world says. You have to be in somebody's camp. You've got to, you, you have to live according to someone's platform. And there are really, there are like two platforms to choose from. At least that's what we're told, right? There, there's the platform of people that seem to want rights for the oppressed and care very much about the poor. But those tend to be the same people that want no restrictions when it comes to sex. You know, your body's yours. You do whatever you want with your body. And essentially what that is, if you think about it, it's verse 3 without verse 4. But then there's another group of people that says, um, you know, we want to get back to the traditional values of the family. But when I hear a lot of what that group has to say, I don't seem... I don't see often very much interest in helping the poor or the oppressed or the mistreated. And it's verse 4 without verse 3. Don't you see, every other worldview, every other belief system, every other religion, which is what we're talking about here, let's not fool ourselves, um, is essentially, has the marks of self-centeredism in it. And it doesn't matter if it's left or right. They both have it. Because the left says, basically, your body is yours and you should be able to do what you want with it. And the right says, no, your money is yours and you should be able to do whatever you want with it. And the Bible says, neither are yours and you can't do whatever you want with either. Both are gifts from God and they're given to you to to make earth look more like heaven, which is the ultimate unselfish realm. It's to bring heaven to earth. And the way that you use your body and your money indicate which kingdom you think you belong to. And we're to be a preview of that new community. We should be a community that lives out three and four together where we're both committed to sexual purity and the dignity of the oppressed. Have I ruffled everyone's feathers yet? I'm trying to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. Um, We live in such a polarized world that is trying to get you to squeeze you into one of its two camps. Please don't let it. Please, please. 
If you're part of the kingdom of God, live according to the gospel and according to the values of that realm because it's the one that's permanent. It's the one that's breaking in. It's the one that's only, and the only one that's going to last. The world has never seen a community that holds verse 3 and 4 together. Let's become that kind of community that, that fits into no category where, where nobody can peg us down. And I, I love this about our community because if you, if you do enough dinners and if you're part of a community group here, you'll start to realize that there are people that are all over the map politically speaking. And that's such a good thing. We need to continue that. We need to hold on to that. Because the kingdom of God, is, it, 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 it supersedes all of those camps. Now, just quickly, how do you get that kind of community? This kind of radically open and inclusive community to outsiders, but also is radically committed to love for those that make their way in, that doesn't fit into any box or category that this world has to offer. How do you get it? I think it's in verses 5, 6, and 7. So verse 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. That's the gospel. That's what we've been talking about but then verse 5 says keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because god has said never will i leave you never will i forsake you see um that's the relationship to money that that you you need not seek after money because what is why would we seek after money the reason that we often seek after money is because we'll be more significant if we have it we'll be somebody like if I, if, my, if I get my bank account to this level, then I know that I'm somebody or I know I'm secure. And here's what God's saying. You're already somebody and you're already secure because you know me. And because I've sacrificed everything for you. I've, I went to the cross for you and I rose from the dead for you. You're already somebody. And I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You're always going to be my child and so you know you're significant because I'm the one that really matters. Now, what happens when you know that you're that secure? People who are that secure in their gospel identity, they don't, use, they, they don't love money at the expense of people, but they love people at the expense of their money. See, you become automatically really generous with your things. We use it to build community. But here's the other thing that happens. And this is where verse 6 comes in. People who are secure in their gospel identity aren't afraid of what people think about them anymore. And when I think about community, that is usually one of the main limiting factors when it comes to people really getting involved in a community. Because when you get involved in a community and somebody knows you, just like I did when I was in college, what was I primarily worried about? Are they going to accept me? Are they going to think bad of me? Are they going to approve of me? Are they going to love me? And now look at what says to that. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? See, it removes the fear of being in community. If you know that God loves you and, is, and you're secure in Him forever. You don't have to play at the margins of a community. You don't, you don't have to get pseudo-community, imitation community where nobody really knows who you are because you're afraid to dive deep in, into the deep end of the pool because you're, you're afraid of what people think. The 
what can mere mortals do to you? Of course, the answer is nothing. Nothing. Please, don't be content with imitation community. Don't, don't be content with a cheap imitation. Because if you're securely grounded in Him, and you are if you know Christ, th- then you should want nothing more than to be part of a family that reminds you of His goodness day by day by day. And you'll love people like brothers and sisters because you know that you're a son or a daughter of this king. See, if we've received God's hospitality, then we should be conduits of his hospitality of the world. But here's the key. So oftentimes we leave you with what you should do, right? You should do this, you should do that, you should do this. That's not what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Don't think about what you should do. Think about what God has done for you. And that will lead you. Because you'll find that the Holy Spirit will empower you and enable you to open your home. Because God opened his home for you. And you'll open your wallet every time you think of God giving his resources to you. And you'll open your life every time that you think of Jesus opening his life to you. And you'll open your privacy and your hearts and your secrets and everything else. You'll be an open book and a community that will accept you because it's full of people that have all experienced the same grace together. Do you want the consuming fire of God to sweep through your life? Invest yourself in this community. Let's pray. Father, um, we understand our need, hopefully, God. Because of your word, I pray that it's convicted us to realize how deeply dependent we are on being part of a group of brothers and sisters. But I know, because I've experienced it, um, we're fearful of that level of commitment. We're fearful of that level of authenticity and vulnerability. Um, And so, God, we need you to work on those things in us. Would you remind us of our security in you? Would you pour out your love and your approval of us, even now, so that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are our helper, that you will never leave us, never forsake us. And because those things are as tangible to us as the seat that we're sitting in, that it removes all fear. Help us, God, take a step towards a community of brothers and sisters, towards loving strangers as friends, and towards being this radical, countercultural community. It's only because of you that it could be possible. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.